With an open mind for learning and a soft spot for paediatrics, this is Fontanelle. Today's episode is on common upper respiratory tract infections. I'm Caroline Storey, a paediatric trainee in Wessex, and my guest is Dr Sanjay Patel, consultant in paediatric infectious diseases at Southampton. As Sanjay points out, upper respiratory tract infections form the bulk of paediatric presentations, both in primary care and ED, with two-thirds of urgent care activity in under fives being respiratory tract presentations. In this episode, we'll explore why parents bring their children to see a doctor, what they expect, and whether antibiotics are on their agenda, or even useful in this group. We'll look at what drives antibiotic use, as well as their dangers, including side effects, resistance, and perhaps most interestingly, the way they can influence future health-seeking behaviour. Sanjay puts forward the idea that rather than trying to differentiate between a viral or bacterial cause for an illness, we should use markers of severity to guide management. This principle, which has been adopted nationally and is reflected in the red, amber, green traffic light system in the Healthier Together clinical pathways, allows for effective safety netting and appropriate treatment where necessary. Sanjay also talks through some fundamental changes recently made to the antibiotic guidelines, getting rid of some unpalatable medicines and impractical dosing regimes, a welcome change for many, particularly parents. The hope is that by changing the way we approach common respiratory tract infections, we can help educate parents and reduce the number of antibiotic prescriptions in this group by 50%. Quite a challenge, but perhaps if we're all clearer on why we're writing that prescription, it just might be achievable. So I'm here in Southampton today with Dr. Sanjay Patel, a consultant in paediatric infectious diseases. Welcome back to Fontanelle, Sanjay. Thank you. Lovely to chat again. And we're going to talk today about common respiratory tract infections. Yeah, absolutely. They make up the bulk of activity in primary care and ED. Mm. When you look at the data, especially the under fives, the under fives make up the bulk of paediatric unplanned activity. And in that age group, Two thirds of it is um, is something to do with a fever, a respiratory tract infection. Mm-hmm. Why do parents bring them to see a doctor? Mainly because they're worried, mm-hmm. and I know that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say. Obviously, they're worried, but they're really worried that their child might have something seriously wrong with them that might result in significant harm. And from all of the survey data and the fabulous qualitative research that's been published on this cohort of children, young children with respiratory tract infections, the common message from parents is they just don't feel confident in distinguishing a minor self-limiting illness from something more serious. Mm. You know, we often perceive, and the perception from clinicians is that parents are seeking antibiotics, but that's so far from the truth in many, many parents. Mm. They don't want antibiotics necessarily. What do they want? Reassurance? They want reassurance, exactly. They want someone who they trust. And I say someone, and that's one of the big questions. Does it need to be a physical person? But they want to feel reassured that their child is not 
really sick. Mm, And by bringing them to us, which is one of the main approaches they've got in the NHS, they want a clinician to see them and to do whatever. And that whatever may be examining them. It may be just talking to them, but just explaining clearly what red flags the child doesn't have or does have and what to look out for when they go home. And I think that bit's fundamentally important, the safety netting aspect. Mm. And that comes from parents as well. They are desperate to know, actually, what should I be looking out for? Mm. Okay. And what type of things would you tell them then? Well, we have developed safety netting sheets, as you well know, on the Healthier Together website. And and the main pathologies we're talking about are sore throats. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're talking about otitis media. We're talking about pneumonia and coughs. And so for all of those, there are different red flags, red and amber features to look out for um, for parents. And I think it's really important that we are consistent across the healthcare system mm-hmm. when, we, uh, when we manage these children. And I've, I've got this lovely quote from a parent that I read, which I'm going to tell you, which, which kind of brings it home to me. Uh, this mother says, I rushed him down to the doctors and apparently both his tonsils were inflamed and he was put on antibiotics straight away. I felt dreadful and said, how did I miss that? And from then on I've been, I can't have him suffer like that next time. Oh, no. You know, this was a young child, a three-year-old, who in all probability had a viral respiratory tract infection, upper mm-hmm. respiratory tract infection, but by virtue of being prescribed antibiotics, her future health-seeking behaviour is obviously going to be to go to the GP because, mm. or to ED because they're going to go to somewhere where her mm. child can access antibiotics. Yeah, okay. So if we're talking about activity and yeah, looking at the data in Southampton, activity for these kinds of presentations has gone up by 25% in this age group in the last 12 months, which is completely unsustainable. Wow, that can't carry on, can it? It just can't carry on. No. And so something's got to give. Yeah. And what we found through some of the safety nursing work we've done in Southampton is that you can reduce presentations during the same illness or in future illnesses 50-60% potentially mm. if you effectively safety net. Wow, okay. So for this child, a three-year-old with inflamed tonsils, what do you think made that clinician give antibiotics or what would they maybe be better off doing on another occasion? Yeah, I think we're really risk-averse with young children. And when I mean young, I'm not talking about babies under three months of age. Those are a high-risk group. We know about neonatal sepsis and late-onset sepsis. So I'm talking about a child that's one or two or three. And clinicians seem to be more worried about those children than a 12, 13, 14-year-old. And actually, when you look at the epidemiological data, it's far more likely that the etiology of their infection is viral in younger children by virtue of the way they interact, mm-hmm. the virtue which with they spread infections, uh, your likelihood of a respiratory tract infection being viral in etiology far higher in young children. And all of the data, there's mm-hmm. lovely data to show that with, um, with sore throats and with pneumonias and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, really good question, why do clinicians pres- prescribe antibiotics? And I've asked a lot of them that, and I think... Uh, Clearly, one of the main perceptions is if I prescribe antibiotics, the child's symptoms are going to resolve more quickly. Also, that if I prescribe antibiotics, they're less likely to come to harm in terms of suppurative complication. I think the media has clearly not helped in the way that the media has changed so tremendously. I mean, just think we're doing a podcast now, aren't we? Mm. No one had heard of a podcast 10 years ago. And, and, and the instant messages people get and the way that me, the news travels so quickly. And I think that we are so influenced by what we read in the papers that our risk aversion and fear of missing things like sepsis 
and meningitis is driving a lot of yeah. antibiotic prescribing yeah. as well. Okay, in terms of doing harm, and maybe by giving antibiotics we could be doing harm, we've got the resistance, which we're obviously worried about. Is there anything else that you'd worry about? So I think two things. I think you've hit the nail on the head. You, you read in the media, and this is a real story. It's not just uh, fake news. Uh, antibiotic resistance is absolutely here and absolutely terrifying, partly because we don't have a whole load of new antibiotics to give to children when we run out of the ones that we currently have. It's a natural process, but we're speeding up the evolution of resistance by virtue of prescribing antibiotics at population level at the rates that we're doing. Um, there are also side effects from antibiotics. Yeah. So all of those bits about diarrhoea and skin rashes, well, they're real. And, you know, 10, 15, 20% of children are going to experience direct side effects from antibiotics. And I think the third bit, which is, which is almost the most complicated, is it impacts on future health-seeking behaviour and resilience. Mm-hmm. And if you perceive, like in the quote I just said, that the antibiotics made the difference for your child, then you're going to expect to be, receive them next time. Mm-hmm. And that's why these rates of um, presentations to primary care and ED are going up by 5 to 10 to you know, 25% year on year. Yeah. Just going back to the diarrhoea as a side effect, can you get long-term changes to your gut microbiome by taking antibiotics, or is that a bit of a myth? Really good question. Uh, the microbiome essentially means the uh, bacterial composition of our body. You know, we are made up of 10 times as many bacteria in our bodies than human cells, which is so hard to comprehend, but it shows how important that relationship is between bacteria and human cells in all of the enzymatic processes, etc. We don't even really understand what that interaction is, but in the past five years, there's been an explosion of knowledge in terms of the microbiome. And there are some really interesting signals coming out about the impact of early life exposure to antibiotics um, and things like obesity and things like allergy uh, and other processes. So I think it's, it's real. We don't really understand it particularly well, but we're going to learn a hell of a lot more about it in the coming years. Mm. And I feel very strongly about our exposure uh, to the microbiome uh, from antibiotics. Mm. And do you think that length of course makes a difference? The longer you expose the microbiome to antibiotics, the more resistance you drive. So say you took a course of azithromycin, a three-day course of azithromycin Mm -hmm. this week. In six months' time, I would still find resistance to azithromycin in you, in the gram negatives in your body. Wow. So that is the natural process of resistance. Mm -hmm. So the things you may have heard about in the news are, should we only be treating infections until people get better? Mm -hmm. We don't know. But if you do not think a patient has a bacterial infection, and it could be that, you know, on day one people weren't sure, but then when you get results through, it's obvious that this is a viral infection, just stop them. If you've got a bacterial illness that needs antibiotics, then they need to be treated until they're better Mm. and we should be following the course length guidance that we have through the scan guidelines which are the primary care guidelines in this area or within secondary care through the peer guidelines Mm. Um, but if it's not a bacterial infection do not treat with antibiotics okay so coming back to this child with the inflamed tonsils how would we if, if they've actually got a bacterial infection how could i as a clinician be confident that, yes, I do want to use antibiotics and this is justified and will be helpful. We 
have to be really careful about this concept about bacteria and viruses, in my opinion. The reason I say that, and I know it might sound mad as an infectious diseases consultant that I'm trying to dismiss the concept of bacteria versus viruses, but it's almost impossible. It's really difficult for most respiratory tract infections to confidently distinguish them clinically. And the problem with that is that it results in a lot of clinicians prescribing antibiotics just in cases of bacterial illness. And when you look at the data, and there's some fabulous data, primary care data, on the impact of antibiotics on respiratory tract infections for sore throats, for otitis media, and for lower respiratory tract infections, they make hardly any difference in terms of the speed at which symptoms resolve. And so my approach and the approach nationally is that we should be basing the decision to treat on severity of illness, not on whether it might be a bacterial illness or not. Okay, so that's a completely different concept. Completely different concept, which is why things like fever pain and other scoring systems for otitis media, we've got a scoring system that essentially scores the severity of your symptoms and allows clinicians to make decisions about whether to prescribe or not on that. Mm. Um, And I think... That's a much more effective way of prescribing because it will result in less harm to children and less unnecessary medicalisation. So we're still actually doing it in case it's a bacterial infection, but we're just moving our bar higher, saying if we don't treat this and it's bacterial, that's going to be dangerous. Yeah, we're saying that mild to moderate bacterial infections um, do not benefit from antibiotics from all the data we have. So we're saying exactly that, that Mm. we have immune systems, Uh, Those immune systems will treat, will cure us of infections. Uh, But if things progress, and that's where safety netting comes in, if symptoms worsen, well, then absolutely come back. And then we can consider starting Mm. antibiotics. I mean, another approach is delayed prescribing that's used quite commonly in Mm. primary care. And another really powerful approach for um, getting parents and the public to see that actually most infections don't need treating with antibiotics. We've got to change the expectation. Mm. If you're in Holland and you take your child to see a GP or a a paediatrician and they prescribe antibiotics, the first question you'll ask is, justify to me why my child needs antibiotics. And that's what we (laughs) need to try and achieve in this country. Okay, so the expectation is, no, they don't need them. Please don't prescribe them unless you can tell me why. And I've, and I've interviewed parents in this country who have left a consultation with exactly the same feeling. They went in not wanting antibiotics and they came out having, with their child having been prescribed antibiotics. And they just felt, look, that's not, that's not what we were looking for. Right. And I think that that concept of shared decision making and aligning the consultation to why the parent brought their child for the consultation in the first place mm-hmm. is fundamentally important. They don't go there generally seeking antibiotics. They want someone to check that their child isn't seriously unwell and to provide them with some sensible information about what to look out for. We cannot really clinically distinguish viral infections and bacterial infections and parents just, they they generally don't know the difference in those things. And so when you hear parents have gone, the doctor, they're always saying my child's got a viral infection. It shows that that consultation achieved very little or wasn't the best use of that 10 minutes. If if we spend the 10 minutes in primary care or, or in ED, going through red, amber, green, severity, what to look out for at home, what can be done at home during that illness. We're going to reassure parents more effectively. They're going to represent during that illness less frequently and they're going to represent in the future less frequently. So if I think back to this week in PAU and then diagnosis or impression 
viral upper respiratory tract infection, viral upper respiratory tract infection. Actually, there's no way of knowing it's viral. It's just non-severe. You're right, in time maybe we'll completely remove that presumed viral and just write moderate, mild to moderate, because that's actually how we should be thinking. Yeah, that is more of the framework of thinking. So what's different uh, about the Dutch approach? I wish I knew. I think we're thinking about this at national level. I do a lot of work nationally and across Europe in terms of antibiotic stewardship for children. And there needs to be a seismic change in societal attitudes to antibiotics and perhaps in terms of risks and benefits. And I think people perceive harm from not prescribing antibiotics, but they don't perceive harm from receiving antibiotics, and that's what needs to change. Mm. Having looked at rates of antibiotic prescribing in primary care versus ED, say, rates are considerably higher in ED for the same cohort of children presenting and that inconsistency is driving anxiety and thus antibiotic seeking behaviour. That's interesting do you think that could be because in primary care at least there's an element of follow-up? I think there's so many reasons I think primary care clinicians are far better at managing risk compared to hospital staff. Mm. We know from all the data that if you get GPs into EDs your rates of investigations plummet your rates of prescribing plummet Mm. we just have a very different approach in hospital. But your, your, your comment about the follow-up is fundamentally important as well, that whilst we continue to work in silos in a non-integrated system, we don't have the confidence that that child, if they were to deteriorate, would be you know, potentially managed in the same way. Mm. And so until we trust the system, until we influence the system, and until we work within an integrated system, some of those things mm. are going people are going to find challenging. Mm. It's really hard to change... Um, behaviour full stop and it's really hard to reduce variation we know that from all of the national data Um, but trying to achieve something across community settings uh, out of hours settings and hospital settings is is hard but I think we're getting there Mm. and I think if we get this right we can reduce antibiotic prescribing in children by 50% Mm. and I think if we're able to achieve that it will have a huge impact on the quality of care and the confidence that parents have in Wessex. So you talked earlier about why parents bring their children in and that they're worried, they're worried something's seriously wrong. And I think a phrase sometimes we hear is, oh, it's, it's gone to his chest and they're worried about pneumonia. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think pneumonia is, 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 is challenging because there, is, there isn't a great validated scoring system for clearly identifying who will benefit from antibiotics or which child will compared to um, who won't benefit. Uh, there's a lovely adult study that was done recently that showed that very little difference in terms of speed of resolution of symptoms and, and complications when antibiotics are prescribed or not, and we're trying to replicate that study in children. Um, the approach that we take, which is based on kind of the national guidance, is that if a child has had a fever for a day or two, a couple of days of fever, and has respiratory distress, um, and that they don't have bronchiolitis, so they're not an infant with respiratory distress, then uh, one would consider treating with antibiotics. Mm-hmm. If they have a wheeze, especially if they've got a bilateral wheeze, it makes it extremely unlikely it's a bacterial infection. Even hearing crackles is so poorly associated with uh, an infection in children being bacterial or not that um, those auscultation adds very little to the decision-making about who to prescribe antibiotics to or not. But the, 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 um, 
the most robust metrics are hypoxia and respiratory distress. Mm. I would love us to have a more validated system for um, for children, but that's our approach at the moment. Mm. And I know that it can sometimes be challenging to measure SATs in um, in primary care. Um, for the older child, you could use an adult probe. Yeah. In my opinion, I think that all GP practices should have a probe that uh, accurately measures the SATs in a child. It's a fundamentally important piece yeah. of information. You know, there's been this huge push about sepsis, hasn't there, Caroline? Mm. In the past couple of years, a massive push based on, you know, resulting in the nice sepsis guidelines being published. Sepsis is a physiological process. And what I mean by that is, is it's because of capillary leak. Mm. that you get those sequelae that allow you to diagnose sepsis clinically. And you look for tachycardia, tachypnea, hypoxia, altered level of consciousness, reduced urine output, cold hands and feet. And it's a jigsaw. And I think some of the fundamental bits of that are your physiological parameters, like your heart rate, your respiratory rate and your SATs. And I think that to confidently rule out sepsis at that moment in time one requires a clinician to measure those things. And mm-hmm. clearly if a child's got a viral upper respiratory tract infection, you barely need to examine the child. But to identify the unwell child, one needs to look at their physiology. Mm. That's great. So we've talked a lot about when we should not give antibiotics. If the child does need antibiotics, where can we find information about what to give them? We've just finished a big piece of work um, rewriting or changing the guidance on mm-hmm. prescribing in both community-based settings, so primary care and in secondary care. And what we now have across Wessex is we have the same guidelines for things like tonsillitis, otitis media, impetigo, uh, pneumonia, so that there is no longer that inconsistency uh, about antibiotic prescribing in primary and secondary care. Mm -hmm. And so for GPs, that's found on the SCAN guidelines, and for um, secondary care clinicians, that's found on the PEER website. and that's the same guideline as you'd get in the micro guide? As in, indeed, exactly. It's yeah. the same thing that uh, hospital clinicians are using through the micro guide. But there have been some fundamental changes. Okay, in, like what? So we recognise that if a child needs antibiotics, um, it needs to be an antibiotic that they'll tolerate. So things like penicillin V suspension, things like flucloxacillin suspension taste awful yeah <laughs> they do taste awful and it's extraordinary i speak to trainees and colleagues who still remember when they were a child being given penicillin b suspension and how revolting it was and you know i always use the the, the, the test which is what would i do for my child mm. you know and, and i wouldn't wake them up in the middle of the night giving them a four times a day antibiotic and i wouldn't give them something revolting mm. so we've very much moved away from four times a day dosing of things like penicillin v um, we've very much moved away from the use of things like flucloxacillin and penicillin mm-hmm. B. And so we now um, use amoxicillin, mm-hmm. um, first line for most, most respiratory tract infections. Mm-hmm. We give it on a BD dosing regimen, which reflects the WHO dosing, actually. So they use a BD regimen. There's some fabulous efficacy research and pharmacokinetic data supporting that. Okay. Um, and it's just so much better tolerated. So when we've looked at the adherence data, comparing four times a day prescribing to three times a day and two times a day, the number of doses missed are significantly lower. And it, you do get the um, serum concentration you do, yeah. is so adequate when you do it. For beta lactams, it's a, in a 12-hour period, you need to have your dose 
or in a 24-hour period, you need to have your dose above the MIC for a certain amount of time. Mm. You achieve that absolutely adequately okay. if you're using the right dosing on a BD regimen, yeah. which is why we suggest 40 milligrams per kilo. Yeah, I've been using that on the ward, and actually it's questioned every time, so I always have to document where I've got that yeah. dosing from. But And that's why this is a piece of work where you recognise that we work in, work in a joined-up system. Mm. And so... It's not just the prescribers, but also the dispensers, and mm. you're referring to the pharmacists. Mm. And we're doing a big piece of work with community pharmacists um, in terms of these recommendations, the evidence supporting them, and a big comms and education piece for pharmacists. Mm. But yeah, that's one of the big changes is the amoxicillin. Um, there's been a change in terms of the macrolide that's used if someone has a confirmed penicillin allergy. And we very much moved to azithromycin, far better tolerated, mm. far better tasting the clarithromycin. It's once a day for three days. Yeah. The efficacy is just as good. The resistance profile is very similar, potentially selects out less of the very highly resistant um, organisms that clarithromycin does. Um, we have changed the length of prescribing for tonsillitis. So historically, we've gone for 10-day courses. Mm. We're different in terms of group A strep in this country compared to um, other parts of the world where there are far higher rates of rheumatic fever. So in the UK and in uh, developed countries, you know, a seven-day course absolutely suffices. It means you don't have to give them a second bottle of antibiotics mm. to go home with. So I think it's important to remember that we're not saying that you know, never prescribe antibiotics to children, but base it on severity. You know, if you think a child's got group A strep, and I think the fever pain score thing is, is relevant, as is scarlet fever, well, then do treat them. Mm. But you don't need to give them penicillin V four times a day for 10 days because they're just not going to take it, and it's going to totally traumatise that family. Mm. So you mentioned azithro as a second line if there's a penicillin allergy. You know, I think we used to prescribe a lot more azithromycin if someone had... A respiratory tract infection with global mild streaky chest x-ray changes and you sort of think well we'll just give them some azithromycin for three days and we're really not encouraged to do that now can you just tell us a little bit about yeah, what's behind that no absolutely caroline it's through the antibiotic resistance so different antibiotics drive different levels of resistance and so if as I said to you earlier if I gave you if you took a course of azithromycin today you'd still have evidence of resistance azithromycin resistance macrolide resistance in six months time so if you multiply that across a population you start driving very high level resistance across the population so beta lactate the narrower your antibiotic so this is the concept of amoxicillin versus azithromycin they're different classes but they're also amoxicillin uh, uh, is a far narrower spectrum antibiotic it drives a lot less resistance at population level so in the case of your streaky shadowing bilaterally, that child should just not receive antibiotics. But if it was a more significant lower respiratory tract infection, amoxicillin would most definitely be your drug of choice. Mm. I think the challenge is when children are labelled with penicillin allergies mm. and a big piece of work that we're about to embark on is how do we delabel those children? Mm. Incorrect labelling of penicillin allergy is associated with higher mortality across a lifespan and also higher rates of being colonised with MRSA and other resistant organisms. Mm. And mortality so, being from... So from a whole spectrum of things. Mm. But by virtue of treating them with less effective antibiotics okay. potentially and um, throwing out your beta lactams, 
you're actually conferring harm to those individuals. So those how, yeah. So because it's a very scary thing, isn't it, for someone like me to take away that label? Is it? How how can we do that without putting them through some kind of exposure testing regime? So t- two ways. I think the initial labelling. So at the time that a child is labelled with a penicillin allergy, we need to have clearer guidance on when a child, when a history is suggestive of a penicillin allergy or beta lactam allergy or not. And I think for that cohort of children who are already labelled with penicillin allergies, we need uh, systems in place which, which are being trialled by colleagues in Sheffield um, where we can delabel in the community, mm. potentially with oral antibiotics, a small dose of a beta-lactam to delabel. Wow. But it's, it's, kind of, it's a really important piece of work that needs to be done yeah. and will be done in this region in the next couple of years. Great. That's exciting. Yeah, very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any more developments you'd like to tell us about? I think that there's been a huge pressure on clinicians uh, following um, the information we get about sepsis. I think it's absolutely right that we should be thinking about sepsis. And I think it's absolutely right that for children who appear unwell, we are able to quantify, we're able to use physiological metrics to help uh, identify the child with sepsis. But I also recognise that that uh, focus on sepsis is potentially driving unnecessary antibiotic use. Mm. And so I think we're in a difficult position with that. And I think we're going to spend the next few years negotiating um, a route that allows us to continue recognising and identifying the child with sepsis, but not over-treating children who are not going to benefit from antibiotics. Because if we don't do that, we're going to overly medicalise children and we're going to drive rates of antibiotic resistance. And that just brings me on to just the difference between IV and oral. Do you have any comments about that at all? A really good question. Um, We have been really keen to treat unwell children with intravenous antibiotics for prolonged periods of time. My personal practice has been that my duration of IV antibiotics has got shorter and shorter and shorter over the years. Um, If a child is clinically improving, so this is for children who are managed within a secondary care setting, obviously, if um, if they're clinically improving, if their fever's resolved, and if their inflammatory markers are improving, I switch them to oral antibiotics, unless it's obviously a pathology that mandates an entire IV course, such as meningitis or infective endocarditis. But for osteoarticular infections, for lower respiratory tract infections, very little evidence, almost no evidence showing that intravenous antibiotics confer any benefit over oral antibiotics. Okay, so if that's the case, what would be the benefit of starting with IV? if the child's not vomiting and they're tolerating very little so i was just just a cultural practice it's a cultural practice i was just reviewing the national pneumonia guidelines for children and they make it absolutely clear that apart from the most severe cases all others should be managed with oral amoxicillin Mm. you know unless you've got uh, significant hypoxia or an immunosuppression or uh, underlying comorbidities like cystic fibrosis or bronchiectasis yeah, for those children, getting high concentrations in the lungs is likely to be beneficial. But for mm. most non-comorbid children, very little evidence supporting a benefit from IV antibiotics. Mm. So if you've made your clinical diagnosis based on temperature going on for more than a couple of days, and tachypnea and hypoxia, then oral amoxicillin, unless there's a deterioration... Absolutely. So you wouldn't actually need to do any blood tests? No, you don't need to do any blood tests and you can safety net them Mm. so that if they they do deteriorate, they come back in a timely fashion. For me, that's not a sign of failure. That's a sign of a system that works where you've empowered parents. Mm. 
Great. Well, thanks so much, Sanjay. That's it's a pleasure. Been, yeah, really nice to chat to you again. Pleasure. Thank you. Yes, and thank you so much once again to Sanjay Patel for sharing his vast knowledge and insights with us. For me, looking at respiratory tract infections as mild, moderate or severe, rather than whether they're bacterial or viral, was a real game changer. Although quite obvious actually and I think this is quite a simple bit of information to pass on to others too and that includes parents. It was interesting to hear Sanjay's thoughts on delabeling people of their penicillin allergies and a reminder for me to be very thorough in my history taking when being told someone does have an allergy. I was fascinated by the fact that a three-day course of azithromycin results in measurable resistance six months later. And I'd love to hear more about the effects of antibiotics on our microbiome and the effects of that on obesity and allergy, as they become known. Sanjay touched on sepsis, and this will be the topic of a future podcast in this Healthier Together series. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you have, please do subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For any feedback at all or ideas for future episodes, please email me, Caroline Story, at fontanellepod at gmail.com and I'll get back to you. But for now, from Fontanelle, goodbye. <laughs>